This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. We're continuing our theme of listening to sermons that deal with communion in the evangelical world. We've listened to a number of them. I've still got several of them that I'm wanting us to uh, give a listen to, but they all kind of come from different places in the evangelical world. What we're going to do today is take a listen to a guy who is more of the Pentecostal stream. for coming. Here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to uh, get us focused on communion for a little bit today. And I want us to, at the end of my sermon, we're going to take communion together. And so what I want to do is just talk about communion, what it means, why we do it, and then uh, release us and we're going to take communion together so that we can really focus and really really just connect with Jesus in a very deep way today. Okay, I want to stop right there because I know you, I can tell I can tell you're already itching just by but just by that opening salvo. I mean, the opening salvo starts with um. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean there's a lot more to say, but a Lutheran homily never starts with um. It always starts with standard word grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ there's no hesitation about this there's no thinking about what what the message is that you're trying to convey it is it, it is the grace and peace of Christ to you from God delivered in the in the homily you're speaking of the votum correct tell us about the votum well the votum is a liturgical preface as it were to the sermon which means that the sermon is actually part of the liturgy it, it embeds the, the sermon within the liturgy. And, and what it does is it forces the sermon to proclaim the word that has been just read in the lessons from Scripture. And in a Lutheran church, there are three lessons uh, every Sunday, an Old Testament lesson, an epistle lesson, and a, a gospel lesson. Typically, the Lutheran sermon will be on the gospel, but not always. Uh, oftentimes, there's also a, a psalm that gets uh, chanted or read uh, as, as part of the service of the word. Using the votum constrains the preacher in a very interesting way, in a positive way, but in an interesting way. The first words out of his mouth are, Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the thread, this is the note that the entire sermon must proclaim. You can't have a dissonance sort of between that votum and the final sort of takeaway of your homily. In other words, what the votum does is it forces the preacher to proclaim the gospel. Not to teach a Bible class, not to show his savvy with exegesis, but to proclaim the gospel. And that proclamation of the gospel, of course, is predicated upon the proclamation of the law as well. If you're an evangelical listening to this, you, you, you may find it fascinating that many evangelicals will come to a Lutheran congregation, hear a sermon, and be astounded by the fact that it sounds like an evangelistic sermon. It does. Why? Because God is constantly converting his people who are simultaneously saint and sinner with his two words of law and gospel. And faith 
clings only to the gospel, so it must always be proclaimed. That's why the votum is so, so important. The preacher doesn't get up and hesitate about what he's going to say. He encapsulates it all with those words from Scripture, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> and so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let me just give you a few verses here as we get started. This is 1 Corinthians 11, and it says this. Now, this is uh, Paul writing to the church there in Corinth, and he says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Say, remember me. I didn't hear you say, Pastor Bruss, remember me. You were instructed to by the pastor. I guess I was. Uh, did, did we hear anybody say, remember me? Did it, so once again, we have observed this before. Uh, I think in, in, in one of the recent ones that we've looked at, as the pastor read these very words from the Apostle Paul, his voice would raise when the verb or the noun remembrance came into play. Because this is what he wants to emphasize. Absolutely. And then he uh, reinforces this with crowd participation. Correct. And interestingly, uh, I, I don't know what version he's reading from. Yeah, but I've tried to... pieces? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we don't... Uh, uh, that's not what it says. It just says he broke the bread. Uh, there's an awful lot of weirdness in this translation that he's working with. Well, maybe uh, as he continues to read, we'll be able to pick up exactly, uh, you know, what's going on here. Now, I would say, though, in these new hip evangelical churches, the screens play a huge emphasis. There might be a few people there who've got a Bible, but for the most part, it's going to be screen-driven. And you can't see it from where you're sitting, but behind him is a huge movie screen that many times they'll put up verses on. I can't really tell if they're doing that here based upon just the... The, the, the focus. Yeah, the, yeah, the camera angle. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is that this emphasizing what he's reading, my guess is somewhere on either some screens off to the right and left, remembrance is going to be emphasized too underlined or in italics or bold or something like that. Precisely. Gotcha. Verse 25, In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this too. Remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. It's fascinating that he inserts the word wine in here. I, I'm expecting that they're using grape juice uh, in this congregation. No doubt. But the word wine does not occur in the words of institution, interestingly. The fruit of the vine does, and of course that is... Uh, but but that's that's um, sort of outside of the, the actual words of institution. Um, Jesus refers to the, the, this fruit of the vine. So it's interesting that he would actually refer to wine, uh, and I wonder what kind of questions that's going to raise in the mind of his hearers when they drink the Welches. Sadly, there are no questions that are raised in the mind of those who hear this. When they drink the Welches. Correct. One of the main things communion is all about is for us to take a moment and remember what Christ has done for us. I'm assuming that Jesus knew that there would be a Tim Blevins coming along who doesn't have a great rememberer all the time. So now what he's going to do is he's going to go into telling stories about how he has been forgetful in the past. 
and how great it is that Christ set up this tool, this mechanism that doesn't do anything for you, but it causes you to remember. To remember. And so he needed to put something in, in position to help me stay connected with the things I need to remember. Uh, I have proven it over the years. I can forget things. Don't even mean to. My, my lovely wife can send me to Harris Teeter and she'll say, Tim, we need some gluten-free crackers. Um, you know, we need, I don't know, like milk for Eli and, and, and we'll need, you know, some, some paper towels. And so I'll drive two minutes away, walk in and be like, what was it I was supposed to get? Any other men been there before? Interestingly, he's identifying the problem, the human problem, as, a, as the problem of remembrance. Uh, correct? I, I'm not aware uh, anywhere in the scriptures where God diagnoses the human problem as being one of of remembrance, right? It, the, the, the problem, the human problem, is one of sin and death and eternal punishment. One of my professors used to talk about building an inverted triangle on your exegesis, where you take a, a small point in the text and then you build a, an entire edifice that's an inverted triangle over it, so that what's on top is hardly talking about what the point of the triangle is touching in the text. And I think that's, that's exactly, uh, it strikes me that that's what's going on here. Well, and I, you know, I'm just scrolling through my mind and the, the, the times where I have heard uh, Bible teachers in the evangelical world do just that. I was reading in my, uh, just my devotion yesterday, you're familiar with it, where Jesus tells uh, Peter, I believe, to put out into the deep in that he had gotten into the boat because the crowds were pressing upon him. I've heard teachers emphasize put out into the deep, go into the deep in the sense of put yourself out there kind of. Or, well, or... and really explore the deep things of God, the mysteries of God, the, the things that you can unravel. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's one of those one of those talks that can kind of you know, I'm demonstrating the hook in my mouth, kind of really pull you out there. But is that what Jesus was talking about when he said that? No, he's, go out where the fish are. Correct, where you wouldn't expect them to be, but where they are. Exactly, yes. because it's now in the morning or in the heat of the day, the fish have gone down deep. And this is why Peter comes back and says, Lord, we've, we've done this all night long. But because you say, we will do it. And that's interesting. So that, that actually takes the, what you're saying, takes the text in, in, in precisely the opposite direction. It moves away from the clear word and command of God to uh, ruminations of, of the sinful mind um, over things uh, too deep to ponder, things hidden before the foundation of the world. Right. And what it clearly does is exactly what you say by that teacher building this, uh, what, did you, what did you call it, this inverted, inverted triangle. triangle over the text. Correct. And so that's what you're saying. Right. That... And actually, isn't it weird that this is a very strange form of allegorization as well? How so? Well, I must imagine, and, and maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but that in principle, the evangelical mind would share with us the idea that, that the scriptures, that they mean what they say, right? And, and that there aren't these sort of layers of, you know, improper layers of meaning. And I'm thinking about the fourfold meaning of Scripture that, that was, uh, you know, rejected by the first evangelicals, the Lutherans, uh, in, in the early Reformation, and also by Calvinism. And, and these guys, of course, are heirs of both of those traditions. 
um, that, that you can't make the text simply say what you want it to say and, and make um, undue connections. Look, I mean, this is a metaphor, you know, to, to get deep. This is, an, this, is a, this is an English 21st century, it might be a little bit older, but, but not much, metaphor. Jesus doesn't have that in mind. Right. Would Jesus have this being a tool to help guys who are a little bit spacey at times, which we all are, to help them remember? Is that what Jesus is doing with the Lord's Supper? <laughs> it, seems, it, it makes it seem like that's the case. And, and what's interesting, too, is he's starting with 1 Corinthians 11. You know, it, it's very important to lay all of the words of institution side by side uh, because a, as you do that, nuances come out in the text and certainly uh, there is a not, there is remembrance here in, in, in the Pauline text but what is being utterly skipped over is the other references in the other recordings of the words of institution for the forgiveness of sins. Well unfortunately this pastor is not going to draw that out. He's not going to speak about that. So let's let him continue on with communion being an assistance for those who have a hard time remembering. All right, so I'm not alone. I'll walk out with Doritos and root beer, and I'll get the milk. I, I, you know, I'm like, I think that's what it was. And and so I'm like, man, my wife, what a great order she had, you know. I love her, you know. Um, I remember one time, another place I really blew it trying to remember something. We had uh, just moved to Charleston, South Carolina to to go on staff at a church there, big church in Charleston. They'd hired hired me to be their youth pastor this before we planted this church. And and so we'd gotten there. It's our first week in town. And I decided what I would do is I would meet with all the existing youth leaders that were part of the ministry. And so we invited them to come over to our house uh, on Wednesday night after the service and come hang out and we're going to talk. And I'd kind of introduce myself to them. And so so it was on a Wednesday night service, and Harriet looked at me right before the service over, and she goes, hey, uh, before everybody comes, I'm going to slip out a little early. I'm going to go to the house, get everything ready. She said, be sure and get Bailey on before you come. And I said, no problem. No problem. So after service, I do my shaking hands, you know, hugging people, go back to the house, get in the group. I'm talking about youth ministry, and Harriet looks at me, and she goes, Tim, I'm like, yes, babe. She goes, where's Bailey? And I'm like, I left my four-year-old girl at church and never remembered it until then. My daughter reminds me of that often. She's like, you remember that time? Because, you know, every parent you've tried, you know, your kids are like, you know, don't leave me, Mom. And I would say, I would never leave you. And she would go, yes, you might. And, and, so, um, and so she has reminded me of that often. And so, so that's what communion is about, is, is a reminder for people like me. Oh, okay, so there he goes. I mean, that's what he says. Communion, then, is a reminder for either absent-minded or just really busy. they got a lot of things on their mind. And this is this is what helps them. What do you what do you think about that? <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, these stories are entertaining, and uh, but good night is. I'm flabbergasted. I, I don't know what to say. This evangelical sermon is bread and butter. Here is the illustration that is going to highlight the point that you're trying to make. The text, again, as we pointed out before, the text is not driving it. Now you've got some sort of experience 
or some sort of memory or something you did in the past, that's what's now driving it? Yeah, and, and I think that the weird, the weird thing here, uh, to go back to what we were talking about much earlier, is that the human problem is reduced to an inability to remember. What do you do? Because we all know that as we age, the issue of remembering gets harder and harder and harder. And then when one is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, what do you do then? Your rememberer can't do it. So now what do you say to that guy? Right. What, yeah, so that, that, that is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, can the sacrament be given beneficially to somebody who has got Alzheimer's, right? It is the case that, you know, in, in all fairness, that we, in certain instances, uh, stop giving the sacrament to those uh, about whom we cannot ascertain whether or not they have the ability to examine themselves properly. That's all well and good. But you know, and I know, a member of this church who has Alzheimer's, and when you walk in and she sees your collar, she says, Hi, Pastor. Correct. Now, she's 90-something years old. She still thinks her mother's going to come pick her up at any moment and t- uh, at, the, at the nursing home and take her home. But she knows who you are, and she knows what you're there to give and what you're there to do. Which is to give her the forgiveness of sins in the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. To stay very connected to, to what Christ has done for us. And so what I want to do is give you three words to help us remember what we're supposed to do at communion. This, this goes back to uh, the sermon that we heard before from uh, Capusta about how here's an evangelical sermon. We're going to give you remembering, even though that's the emphasis, that's, that's not enough. We're, we're going to give you three things to remember. It's like the evangelical cannot help but add more and more law on something that is meant to be total gospel. They've turned that into law, and now we add more law onto that law. Right. It's interesting, and, 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 and uh, you know, the, that whole burden goes away when you realize, uh, when, when the proclamation is as simple as, look, folks, this is what Jesus is doing for you. That's all you need to know. He's coming to you with his body and blood, to give you the forgiveness of sins. And all you do is receive it with empty hands of faith. Correct. And the three words are going to be reflect, recall, and renew. And so the first is reflect. So what we want to do is when we come to the communion table, uh, you're going to see the bread and the juice is there. And, and so what we want to do is reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for you and I. Okay, so right there, he, he makes the point of what you made earlier, even though he read in the scriptures in a, a very peculiar translation about wine, and now he says, no, we're not even going to do that. We're, you, you're going to come to the table, and there's going to be juice. Now, if I were an evangelical sitting in this congregation, for me, the alarms would be going off in my head that the pastor has said the Lord instituted this one way, and now we're doing a different thing with it. What freedom do we have? Uh, what, what license do we have to do this? And, and wouldn't, this, wouldn't this be a jarring notice that we should be on our watch for everything else this guy says? So you're saying, forget the remember thing. You're just saying, just for changing the element that Christ instituted and commanded. 
you're saying just that one change makes you leery of anything else he's got to say. Wouldn't that make you leery? If your, well, past, if your pastor reads one thing in Scripture and then says the opposite thing? But he clearly does it. He's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there listening to what he's saying. None of them are thinking the way you're thinking. Are you sure about that? Or, or do, you think, do you think that there are lingering doubts uh, in, in the minds of these folks and, and they're saying, hmm... Wine, juice, juice, wine. There's a disconnect here. There's a disconnect here, but I'll go with it. But but they should allow, I, I would suggest, uh, and this is the duty of the Christian, right? Uh, we must discern the spirits. That, that's not just given to the pastors. It's also given to the Christian. And when your pastor begins to, to, to speak contrary to the very words of Scripture, then it's time to sit up and take notice. No, there's another thing, reflecting. Let's talk about reflecting. If, if you heard somebody say, uh, prior to the sacrament, in a Lutheran church, uh, you should reflect, what would you think that that person would be having you reflect upon? If it were to ever come up in a sermon of mine that I use the word reflect, I, I would have people reflecting on their sinful condition, on their need for the Savior. Well, that's not hard to do. Let a man examine himself and so receive the body and blood. And that's straight out of St. Paul's admonition to the, to the Corinthians in, in uh, first, first Corinthians 11. I'm, I'm betting that he's going to take it in a different direction here. And well, maybe we need to replay if, he, if, if we've lost it. Well, let's see. And, and that's one of the things we need to do there is we, we, we pause for this moment and we, we thank Jesus for his sacrifice of himself for our sin. His crucifixion was the single greatest sacrifice in the, in the history of our world. It changed everything, especially for us as we believe. We go from a place of, of a legalistic form and following rules to please God to now through Jesus Christ, we please God by his grace. Are we hearing dispensationalism here? So were the Jews of the Old Testament saved by the, their keeping of the law and the believers of the New Testament are saved by not keeping the law? Yeah. Or, not, or, or uh, regardless of keeping the law? Is that, is that what he's getting at? Yeah, salvation is, is different in the Old Testament from the way that it is in the New. It's a little ham-fisted uh, handling of the scriptures, isn't it? Uh, as if um, God's gospel is not evident at all in the Old Testament. And uh, what, is God's law not evident in the New Testament? And yet, uh, ironically, I heard that word legalistic. And, and one of the things that you, you know, have been pointing out all along here is the command to remember is, an, is always going to be law, law, law. Right. So he's talking, somehow or another, he's talking about freedom where what he's done is he's still got the people enslaved, as it were. And almost in a tougher way, you know, this, this is an entirely internal thing. I can't measure it in a sense. And I must always be uncertain. I can tell if I love my neighbor by what I do and don't do for my neighbor. But I, man, uh, I can't tell if I'm remembering God enough, reflecting on Jesus and his sacrifice enough. And so in John fifteen thirteen, it says that greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And and we see in Jesus that he laid down his life for us. He sacrificed his life so that we can become friends of God. And so he did that for us. And so for for this moment that you're at the table, we, we need to just reflect on the sacrifice. He He was wrongfully accused. He was mocked. He was he was stripped. He had a crown of thorns that was that were mashed into his 
scalp that created blood and and and, and it was it was just an awful moment he was beaten he was whipped until he was unrecognizable. His his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. He hung on the cross and he died. And why did he do this? Why would he go through so much? Why would he give his life for us? And he did this because he willingly paid a price for mine and your sin. We're going to give a guy props for when he says the gospel. We're, we're in the ballpark here. Absolutely. I really appreciated what he did. I I have a lingering question, lingering suspicion. It got heaped on pretty heavy. What's that? The law or? Well, the, the, you know, the brutality, what the the Lord Jesus went through. A good sermon, no matter where you're going to find it, cannot avoid that brutality and must embrace it, in fact, right? I mean, this is, this is actually what the Lord Jesus suffered for the sins of the world. However, it all depends then, frankly, upon how you use those very words. Does it become a lever to to compel those who are hearing it to do something, or is it just simply the gift? No, it's it's the former, not the latter. And that's the scary thing about it. So perhaps for the clearness, the clarity of uh, what Christ has done, but even when you use gospel words in a law fashion, it's still law. So my mind is thinking about how there's nowhere in this church which, by the way, this is in a mall. There's no crucifix hanging anywhere in the tens of thousands of square feet that they have. Wouldn't a crucifix cause one to remember what Christ has done for them? Sure, but it should cause one to remember that this is done, this is done for me. This was done because I am the one that he died for. I'm the sinner. He's the one who took the wrath of God on my behalf. Whereas that idea doesn't force me to do something. It's not manipulating me into some act of obedience. Good. And, you know, we we can even bring in Reformation history here. This was exactly the trope that was used by the late medieval preachers during the season of Lent. That there was, um, they would have these sermons on the the Passion, according to St. Matthew, according to St. John, whoever. Uh, the series of sermons. It was always uh, the sufferings of Christ were, were, were never held, held out as gift. They were always held out as lever. This is what he's done for you. What are you going to do? So, folks, listen. The first evangelical impulse that emerged in Wittenberg rejected this wholeheartedly and said, this is not the gospel, to use the gospel as law. I think people can't hear that difference. You know, you've, I mean, t- tell me, you know, from your own background, I think it would be helpful for people to to know that these categories, I mean, the categories law and gospel exist in the evangelical mind, but the clarity of them is not is not there. So tell us a little bit about that. All I know off the top of my head is the fact that gospel is reserved for people who don't know Jesus. They're not, they're not believers. Law is for everybody else. This is how you please God. If you want to be a man who, like David, who 
was a man after God's own heart. So who does not want that? We all do as evangelicals. And so this is how you do it. And so the pastor is going to come in every every time there is a service with three, four, five things to do in order to please God. Then if you grew up where I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the South, we're going to go back to church on Sunday night and hear five or six more things that we've got to do. So, so, the, so there, the, the, there's there's real lo- uh, use of the law. Uh, in other words, what you're what you're saying is the gospel's not being proclaimed as the central um, uh, sort of item of a sermon on a regular basis. That's correct. Okay. But I think what I'm getting at, or what I'm wondering about, and and I, you need to speak to this. I, you know, this is my impression, having heard a number of evangelical sermons and characterizations of them that even the gospel is turned into law, and the law is never really quite the law. Oh, no, it's man-made law. I mean, it's so not... The five, the five things you do to become a man after God's own heart... Have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. Correct. It, right? So that's an interesting thing. So law is not the law. And then the gospel itself, when it's used as a lever, is turned from this gracious gift into, into God's law. It's like, it's as if your dad had given you a thousand dollars and then demanded of you that you do his lawn all summer long because he had given you the gift. Yeah, it's it's I think we call it gospel. Gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so you bring up a great point. You're you're saying that even though this guy is giving gospel, there's a hook to this. It's a it's a bait and switch tactic. Yes, right. So they're here. So people can say, "Yeah, I, I heard that Jesus died for my sins today." But that really wasn't for me. Period. That was for me to do something else. Correct. Which is not to say, and I and let's be clear, so that no one has any concerns about this. We're not talking about antinomianism here. We're not saying that the law of God does not pertain absolutely to the life of a Christian and that we oughtn't do everything in our power to keep God's holy law. But when we're talking about the sacrament of the altar, it's gift. It's entirely gift, correct. That sin had to be paid. The the penalty of that, the punishment had to be paid. And he did that for us on in Acts chapter 4, 12. We studied this the week before, but it says there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And there is no other name. There is no other person that was worthy that could go to the cross and die for our sin and pay the price for our sin. And we celebrate when we come to that table and we reflect on the sacrifice that he made. For me, when I go to the the table to take communion, one of the first things that always happens as a response to that reflection is worship. I just, I have to worship. I have to humble myself and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. You paid a price that I couldn't pay. You changed my life. You saved me. You gave me life through the cross. And and I just, I have to worship. You can't do anything else but worship when you reflect on the price that was paid, right? What is really interesting about this, a couple different things, many of which uh, you've just alluded to, this this switch, this lever, He's going to say at the end of the sermon that when you come to the table, if there's somebody you don't know, introduce yourself. I can't wait for him to say that because I can't wait to see your reaction. <laughs> but the point is, 
He just got through saying that he can't help but to worship, which in the evangelical world is to put your hands up, right? So that's, that, that's worship. That that's worship. So, okay. Worship in the evangelical church is hands up, looking up to the ceiling as if Jesus is in the rafters, and then just a slight sway back and forth. The highest worship of God is faith in the gospel. Well, not for them. The highest worship of God is ecstasy. It's it's rapture. It's um, enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's saying. That's what he does when he goes to the table in that reflection. But at the end of the sermon, he's going to say, look around though, and if you don't know somebody, uh, make sure you introduce yourself and you tell them, tell them that you're glad to see them and mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. So I would think that the being cordial and friendly with one another would interrupt the worship. That's a very good point. Uh, one, w- one would think as much, wouldn't, wouldn't you? That, that it's a good narthex thing, uh, but not necessarily right in the middle of uh, the church service. Right, but then going back to your point, he's talked about the gospel. He's had us focus our eyes on what Jesus has done, which is great. But then he's given the example of what he does when he goes to the table. And thus, what is put out there is, what are you going to do? How, how is this response to reflection, as he called it, what is going to be your response to reflection? When I stand up here giving this to you, am I going to see lots of people with their hands in the air and their eyes in the rafters, or uh, are you going to come up like a bunch of mopes? Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Second word, recall. When we get to the table to take communion, we need to recall his benefits. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. One of my favorite verses in scripture, thinking about recalling his benefits, is out of Psalms 103, 1 through 5. And it says, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. In some versions, it will say, let us never forget the benefits that he has done for me. And it says, he forgives all of my sins. How many sins is that? All. Man, what an amazing work at the cross that every sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit will be dealt with at the cross once and for all. He did that. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, all your sin, all your shame that's tied to it, all of the condemnation, it's all wiped clean. And you get to stand before God with joy, with cleanliness, with hope, with just a fresh view of life. And you say, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for the cross that has set me free from my sin. Man, well, that's a pretty good benefit if you're looking for a benefit package. Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm selling something, I'm like, that's a pretty good benefit. Okay, this sounds so good, but yet it's that that cyanide in the uh, the milk jug, isn't it? It is. And uh, what do you identify as the cyanide in the milk jug here? Well, one of the things I think about is he's talking about. I mean, what he's saying is true in a sense, in that what Christ did for us on the cross it did benefit the whole world. However, the question becomes. How does that, what took place 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe, how is it then delivered to you? 
See, he is saying that it's delivered to you through, again, something in your mind where you choose, you receive, you decide. Right. That's one, one event. So, so everything is in the rearview mirror, isn't it? And, and I was struck at the juxtaposition between that sort of rearview mirror view of things, what happened 2,000 years ago, and wh- what happened when I received, or t- you know, whatever I did, made a decision for Jesus. Accepted Jesus into your heart. Accepted, accepted Jesus in my heart. And what the psalm actually says. He forgives you all of your sins. Present tense. Present tense. And so now the question for the exegete has to be, How? how? And he would answer that, by the decision one is made. The Lutheran would answer that through word and sacrament. Correct. And, uh, you know, look at this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. That is entirely present tense. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Present tense. And then we get the rearview mirror. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord, okay, so, so he, we can look in the rearview mirror and, and know, uh, it's kind of like those things you get in the mail about your 403B, right? Uh, past performance is no indication of you know future, future results or something like that, right? But in God's world, it is, and that's and that's what the point of the cross is. The point of uh, pointing to Moses here, he, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Past tense, now present tense. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, and, and as you pointed out, the, the the looming question has to be. Okay, he does this in the present tense. How? We have an answer for that. And so then it says, he forgave all my sins and heals all of my diseases. How many of your diseases? All. It's in Scripture, folks. God cares about your physical life as well. He, he has a promise for us that we can stand on and we can receive that, that when we ask for, for healing in our body, there's verses here that back that up and we can say we receive it with faith and believe God for it. Now see this is the Pentecostal charismatic emphasis that I told you about earlier. So faith healing and and, and other things like that. So uh, you know I, I think it's important to point out that Lutherans uh, while we don't uh, engage in faith healing still believe every shred of those words. How do we understand those words? That the Lord will in the resurrection of the dead restore his Christians to to abundance of life. So when the Lord takes someone, the Lutheran would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's say someone who was stricken with cancer for years and years and saw their body shrivel away. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of a funeral that you just did here not even a month ago about a, a blessed saint in the Lord who passed out of this world and passed into God's in the sense that there had been numerous for years prayer for her that she would be healed. Correct. Ultimately, he healed her. Correct, correct. He took her to heaven, and, and on the last day, he will consummate the work that he's begun in her. Fulfilling the promises that he made to her in her baptism. Precisely, and the promises of Psalm 103. In verse 4, it says, He redeems me from death. In other words, he gives us eternal life. He gives us hope beyond the now. 
You may be living in a situation today and you're pressing on. I want you to know you keep pressing because God has eternal life for you. There is more than what you see. There is an eternal perspective that we carry as believers. When someone passes on and goes to be with the Lord, we don't hope like those without hope. We hope like those who understand eternity and we celebrate because there is hope because we have life after what we see today. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is all good. So what a great benefit. He redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. I love the concept of the crown on us. In other words, he mashes the crown where the thorns were smashed, mashed. What's a great word for that? I don't know. But it was pressed into his flesh. It's the, it's the mercy and the grace of God has been pressed into our flesh in such a way that it's not going to leave. And you can walk with confidence that his mercy and his grace are going to be in front of you, beside you, behind you. You can't get away from his love and his grace. That's just how good God is. I don't necessarily disagree with that either. I wouldn't disagree with it either. In, in, in principle, uh, all these words are true, but they have no flesh. I mean, let's go to Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and voila, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But the question is, how is the Lord with us through thick and thin? He is with us through thick and thin, through his word and sacrament. And this is, the, it seems to me, we sort of mystify this thing or make it mystical, don't we? You know, how many people do you talk to who say, no, you know, I talk to the Lord every, I, I haven't been in church for a year or for 10 years, uh, but I know the Lord's with me. You know, I talk to him every day. And he talks to me, yeah. even though I don't read my Bible, but he talks to me. Right. And, and this, this is just utter self-delusion, right? And I think this kind of preaching, you know, leads to that kind of uh, delusion. And, and unfortunately, it, these ideas uh, infiltrate the evangelical Lutheran church. We, we, we are stewed in the soup of evangelicalism, and people can't help but think in these ways. Then it says that his, he fills my life with good things. He fills our life with good things. I love it. I mean, it's like if salvation and healing isn't enough, he's like, you know, let me give you some good things along the way as well. Let me treat you here. I mean, it's kind of like this week, someone brought me a thing of banana pudding. It must have been this big. And I said, only God, you know. I'm like, man, that's good. He brought me good stuff. He wants to bless you with good things and we need to be receivers and say, God, I want every good thing that comes from heaven. And so we receive it. And then he says, my youth is renewed. You know what that means? That means that you're going to have vision and, and promise and purpose in your life to the end of your life, that you'll never run out of a vision and never run out of things to do. I don't care how old you are. You'll stay young in your vitality, in your mind, in your heart, and you'll always have purpose. God's not going to be finished with you until he takes you home. Oh, my goodness. Can you tell that he has a room full of 35-year-olds? Well, it, it, that that must be what it is. And I, I was thinking you were going to say, uh, imagine what his office walls look like. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the, the cheesy um, you know pick me up sayings uh, in <laughs> framed in driftwood, right? Uh, but this is this is uh, you know this is uh, 
Yes, that's a wonderful point that you make, a room of 35-year-olds. Tell us what the difference is between uh, that and uh, Lutheran ministry. Well, before I do that, let me, uh, I'm reminded of how when we started our evangelical church, uh, which I was the pastor of for 13 years. When he says we, he means we, not me. <laughs> you should have been there, Pastor Russ. It was great. So, uh, yeah, my wife and I, when we started this church uh, back in Wilmington, North Carolina, I had uh, a dear friend of mine who's still there. He's been there, gosh, probably 20-something years. And he was the pastor of the Baptist Church down the road. He was He probably had 15 years on me. And uh, I remember him saying to me one time, I told him I'd just come back from the hospital visiting somebody, and he said, do you realize that there's more floors on the hospital than just the maternity ward? So you had been visiting somebody in the maternity ward. Yeah, she had just had a baby. Most of the people at our non-denominational church were young families, and we, you know, we had a a few gray hairs, but uh, for the most part... When, when a pastor plants a church, generally the people who are attracted to that church are of the pastor's age range. Now, the older guys aren't going to go there because they're going to go, what does this guy know? The real young guys aren't going to go there because they go, eh, you know, he's not hip and cool. So typically, birds of a feather, they flock together. And so here's, this is what happens generally. Now, when you get, this is in the early stages. General, and then what happens is once you get a critical mass, then people just start coming because now it's just a popular thing to do. Regardless of age. Regardless of age. And so early on, this is, this is what we saw in our church. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it, but what he said here just a few moments ago, he was a youth pastor. This is the typical track that most guys are on in that they go to a Bible college, they get a youth job, then they move to a bigger youth job. The average stay of a youth pastor, last time I checked, was 18 months. I'm not exactly sure if that's the case anymore. It's a you know small period of time because what happens for that youth pastor is he starts to see the church and he starts realizing, man, I could, I could plant my own church. And then typically, this is exactly what they do. This is what I did. You leave from youth ministry, where I had spent 10 years, and then you go and you plant a non-denominational, which really is Baptist. Correct. You go and you plant this independent church. And the ways for doing it, it's all the same. doesn't matter where you plant it. And the people who are attracted early on are generally in your same sphere. Socioeconomic. Yep. And, yep. Uh, yep. Yep. So my point is, unlike this guy, where you and I have 40 people every month that we go and see and take word and sacrament to because they can't come to us. And tell us about the age of those folks. 80, 90 years of age. It is absolutely astounding to me that you've got somebody like an Edna who's 108 years of age who's there to waiting on you to bring her the Lord's Supper. Right. You know, his words, That I mean, I think we're reacting to his words, uh, th- these promises that you've got a purpose and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, we talk to these older folks. Well, talk about a false hope, too, that he's instilling in them. But continue on. I'm sorry. A vision and a promise. And a purpose? And a purpose. A vision, a promise, and a purpose. And, uh, you know, what you and I see more often than not is that these older folks who, who, who are losing so much eyesight, 
strength, balance, hearing, memory, friends, family. Many of them outlive their own children. They say, what am I doing here? This is a great tentatio, a great trial that these folks go through. And the promise that if you're going to make it to 85 and still live this purpose, vision, promise-filled life it is absolutely hogwash. Now, do they have a vocation? Absolutely. Is that vocation more difficult to discern in American society where we reduce vocation to breadwinning? Absolutely. It, be, it becomes very, very difficult for them. But that's exactly where pastoral care comes in and saying, oh, no, 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 no. You do. You've got a vision. You've got a purpose. You've got a promise. They're going to look at you and say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, I've told you before how the evangelical world has yet in the last number of years, not many, but in the last handful of years, they have put a premium on this whole false doctrine of finding your purpose and doing something great for God. Because if your dreams are achievable, then they're too small. It's this type of thing where God is so big that he's calling you to do something magnanimous for him, making him famous. And that's precisely what the 95-year-old stuck in a wheelchair can't do. Well, what, what can they do? They can suffer in patience and through that very quiet suffering. I mean, it, look, they're not doing this in public. They bear quiet witness to the hope that is in them. And it's a hope that's, that's out of this world. You know, this triumphalist kind of Christianity is, is really, it's, it's poisonous because, well, I think we touched on this, you know, last time, um, the, the poison is, is that the Lord actually promises suffering. And when you have a triumphalistic perspective, it can only shake your faith in the promises of God. If the ones for this life aren't true, what about the ones for the next? Well, and what makes matters worse is it's not just this pastor that we're listening to here that espouses these things. The largest church in America, Joel Osteen is the pastor, and he espouses the exact same thing. Right, and I, and I can see that's very attractive, right? It's sort of motivational and, you know, peppy and pick-me-up, and um, it's a siren song, sadly. You know, one of the Psalms I love is Psalm 88, and I do share this with the sufferers in that under our pastoral care. Psalm 88, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. This is how those people feel. And this is not an ungodly experience, uh, right? I mean, this is, this is right, right here in the scriptures. It's faithfulness unto death faithfulness on death and, and just being living in this gap and disappointment between what God promises and what what life looks like. But through this, God tempers faith. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, this just goes on and on and on, but I, I encourage you to read it. Um, 
it, it, it maps very nicely over uh, the experience of the 103-year-old in the congregation whose friends and family are entirely gone and dead and who has no strength whatsoever. I think there's a lot more that could be said about that, but let's, let's push on with uh, the pastor here. And so you always have the promise and the hope of God in you. Pretty good deal we have. It's a pretty good deal. So when you come to communion, there's bread and there's juice there. And the bread represents his body that was broken for us. And, and if you think about Jesus' life on earth, he, he lived the perfect life, but he also lived the perfectly healthy life. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I got to get back to that. But hold on, he threw in this word, represents. Talk about it. You've already pointed out how he changed from from what we what we read in the text to our practice. So here we've got it. Here's our orthodoxy, but when it comes to our orthopraxy, we're totally going to circumvent what what the scripture says. Now we're actually adding words to the text that the text in no way shape or form allows has this word Re- represents. The word represents. That's the word that we're talking about. Yeah, he's taken his little scalpel cut out the two letters I-S and um, shoved in. And actually, that's a great metaphor, isn't it? (laughs) Represents is a much longer word than is. And you actually have to shove it and impose it upon the text because it ain't there. (laughs) Fit it in where it doesn't belong. His physical body, his emotions, every need he he needed was met. It was satisfied. And he lived in a physical realm with perfection as well. He was totally whole in every way. And in 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And it says, by his wounds, you are healed. And, And that word healed is whole. And so there is an exchange that happens. The wholeness that he had in his physical body, he took upon all the sickness and all of the infirmity so that we could begin to walk in total wholeness in our life. Not wholeness, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? Total wholeness in our life. That's funny. <laughs> Anybody want to walk in total wholeness? I don't. What does it mean to walk in total wholeness in our life? And when he's talking, using these disease terms and so on. So, so is this like, um, you know, these, these heresies of the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, these cults of cereal? I mean, seriously, like the Kellogg family, uh, we're into this weird cult of, you know, cereal is, is the most godly, healthy thing you can eat and, uh, is is that what is that what this is? What is this? I mean, what did he go to GNC regularly? I just chalk it up to the Pentecostal slash charismatic influence of this of this pastor from his background. So, in other words, this this healing, this wholeness, comes to you through faith healing or something like this. I, or, you know, yeah. I don't know. See, here's the thing about it. I've heard him say before. He's come from a very strong Pentecostal stream, but now he's got to lose some of that because he's trying to appeal to more and more people. Now, where he comes from, it would be kind of like that hillbilly elegy. Hillbilly elegy, yeah. So that's where he's going to come from. Maybe not the snake handlers type thing, but holy roller, this is this is his background. 
Well, he cannot be that in a mall where he is trying to attract numerous... Exactly. And this is the same thing with Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen comes from a very holy roller type background that his father, if you ever listen to his father's sermons, very Pentecostal. Well, this is why Joel Osteen, you're never going to hear him speak in tongues, not not in public. Because it will be a turn off. Exactly. And that's exactly what's happened here, too. You st- he still picks up the threads from what he's been taught in the past. But when you ask the question, what does that mean to walk in total wholeness? Nobody there knows. It just it just sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah. Sounds good. I mean, if Jesus, Jesus is going to forgive me of my sins and allow me to walk in total wholeness, wow, two for one. <laughs> we can walk in total wholeness. So when you go to the table today, I want you to get to that table and, and look at that bread and focus on that for just a moment and, and realize that the exchange is happening there, that, that his body was broken so you can be whole in every way. And so I want you to, to take that bread and say, thank you, and I receive healing in my body today. Thank you, I receive joy in place of sorrow because I'm made whole. I want you to take that bread and say, thank you, I, I'm healed in, in my emotions because Christ has made me whole. Thank you that my marriage is restored because Christ has made us whole. Thank you that my son and daughter are returning to, to follow Christ because in his body we're made whole. Everything is restored through Jesus Christ. This is a very dangerous prosperity gospel. He is making it sound as if Jesus is promising all of these things in the supper, yet he is completely denying the thing that Jesus actually said it gives you. Right, exactly. Which is which is your biggest problem. Yes, uh, your marriage falling apart is a horrible thing. Don't get us wrong. We're not uh, poo-pooing that and saying it's, it's a nothing. We're not saying that a, a wayward child isn't, isn't a great shame. Proverbs talks about this. But your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins. For this, as you have pointed out before, this is what nourishes your faith that was given to you. So so one of the things that we noticed is that the, the people are, are not going to hear this contradiction between the wine and the juice talk. Is this a, like a pious fiction that you're allowed to believe at, at church, but you know damn well it's not going to play out in life? Are we serious that everybody is going to that everybody with a broken marriage is going to come and receive the supper and boom, their marriage is going to be healed. Their wayward children are going to return. Their, their, their cancer is going to go away. It cannot be the experience of the people in this congregation that that's true. So, so, so what does this become then for them? A pious fiction? What is it? I don't know about the people who are there, but I do know that there are many people who won't go there because they used to go there, and they used to hear the same stuff. And it didn't pan out. And they said, to hell with it. Because, because they, they, they came to understand that it, that it ain't real. Experience not bearing out the false promises of the preacher. And therefore, number two, either what dismissing Christianity entirely... Uh, because this is how they come to know what Christianity is, or examining the scriptures more carefully and understanding that the Lord is uh, attempting to do something way more than get rid of their cancer, but to redeem them from all of their sins and from death and the devil's power and uh, take them to heaven uh, when they die. 
it would be wonderful if most people fell into that latter camp. However, most people fall into the former camp. You're familiar now with this group called the nuns. Oh, yes, yes. I can't help to think that many of the nuns who categorize themselves as having no affiliation, no religion, no spiritual heritage, any of that, they used to sit in churches like this. They're, they're, they're either children of or the actual pew sitters of places like this. You know, that, that it would be fascinating to look at the, and I wonder if they've done any studies about this, you know, what is the, what is the background of the nuns? You know, retention, look, retention's not great in any church uh, nowadays, but it's, it's a lot better in an evangelical Lutheran church than it is in, in the uh, non-denom world. There is no doubt that people are making decisions to become atheist or a part of the nuns or what have you based upon seeing their parents or them themselves, what this type of preaching that we're hearing is causing them to do is abandon the faith, not embrace it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, there are elements here that are, it's, it's, it's disheartening, it's sad, it's, um, it should make us all lament. But, I, but I'm hearing two things. Number one, God's spokesman, the guy who should be God's spokesman, is speaking on God's behalf promises that God never made. Peace, peace when there is no peace. Right, right. The, the theme of Jeremiah. And number two, I'm noticing this sort of uh, trivialization, you know, this, this kind of joviality and banana pudding as evidence of God's goodness toward me. I mean, give, give me a break. The person we were just talking about, who suffered with cancer for many years and wasted away, lay on her bed dying, saying, God is good. This is good. There was no banana pudding there. And that is the very opposite of trivialization of, of what God's promises are. Uh, Psalm 139, right? I, I love that one. If I ascend to heaven, behold, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And the reality is, we will all make our bed in shale. Exactly. And I would argue, like it is a tough row to hoe getting there. To Sheol. Yeah, yes. to that bed. But you're going. Should the Lord come back in your lifetime, which would be wonderful, where we who are alive will be changed, yeah, yes. changed in a twinkling of an eye. But for the most part, we're walking to that bed in shale. And that's the entire trajectory of the human life. 35 looks like the apex, but make no doubt about it. The seeds of death uh, were sown uh, in, in your very DNA the moment you were conceived. Every baby is born for no other reason than to be placed in the earth at the end of his life. So, so this gets us onto another sort of thing that we could talk and talk and talk about. Why do we say grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ at the start of every sermon? Because people live in a world and a life that tells them they do not have peace with God. They are dying. Their marriages are falling apart. Their children are abandoning the faith. They are sinners. They can't get better. Things happen to them. They do things to others. There is not peace in their experience. And the loud proclamation of the gospel is that God has broken this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Well, and we could talk about this. We will in, in future episodes. But this is why we baptize babies. Because even a baby can die. And so we have that promise. So when you go to that table, celebrate that promise today. Amen? The juice represents his blood that was spilled, which is the new covenant uh, the new covenant that was given to us, the covenant of salvation. It's salvation to us. It's the grace that never quits giving to us. It's the grace that we can't get away from. It's the covenant. It's the promise of God that I'll always love you. Nothing will come between you and I. I'm going to press my love into you, period. And it's the grace of the new covenant that we walk in. So when you're there at that table, you can thank him for that grace and that salvation that he brought to you. Press my love into you. It's like that Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> got a whole lot of love. <laughs> got a whole lot of love. <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. He did the exact same thing, though, that he did with the bread in saying that the juice represents the new covenant. Right. So we have this representationalism again. And, and Pastor Kearns, does the word represent occur in the words of institution anywhere? No, sir. Third word is renew. So we're going to we're going to reflect, we're going to recall, and we're going to renew our commitment to follow Christ. In the book of Revelation chapter 2 is a letter written to seven churches there, and to one of the churches, the, the prophetic word was that, nevertheless, it says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And my mind, I believe that it's that they failed to remember what Christ had done and their commitment had gotten weary, their commitment had gotten slack, and they had left their first passion, the passion of the Lord, and they'd, they'd left that. They were probably in a place where they'd gotten really busy with their work, and, and so they'd poured themselves into work, but they didn't seek first the kingdom of God, and so their passion got shifted. They were probably like a young mom who's got four or five kids in their life, and they're like, man, if I can even get one simple prayer in it, it'd be great, but they've lost the passion through the busyness of life, and, and so what we want to do is we come to this table to park and remember and say, God, I want to renew my commitment to follow Jesus. That right there is typical evangelical preaching. Yeah, and, and so ha- haven't we seen uh, what we suspected early on, the, the gory description of the Lord's suffering and death has now become a lever. Yes, the bait and switch. We just got the, we got the bait early on and we enjoyed it. We even kind of took a little nibble of it. But now here comes the switch right here. Now, I'm not sure which church, uh, you know, the letter to which church he's uh, referring to. Is it the church to Sardis? I know your no. words. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Or is he talking about the church at Laodicea? Correct. Laodicea. Yeah. yeah. You so. left your first love. And this pastor seems to think he knows exactly what caused them to lead it. He started out by saying they failed to remember. They failed to do the act of remembering and renewing and reflecting and all of this. Yes, yes. And then, then he moved into they got busy, and then they moved into they shifted their purpose. So, boy, he has got a threefold rationale for how they left the church in Laodicea, how they left their first love. But the first one was they didn't remember. Yes, let's, let's just read what uh, the letter to the Laodiceans is. 
This is Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 15 and following. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, this is all language. It's, it's Isaianic language. Paul picks it up. It's language of unrepentance, and that, that lack of repentance is really a works righteousness. So what are they saying? They're saying, I, we're rich. Look, they're not, they're not boasting in their physical wealth. This is a boast in their spiritual richness and probably precisely in how well they follow the Lord Jesus. <laughs> what they've left behind then is the faith that what they need above all is the forgiveness of sins in Christ. They are self-satisfied, self-righteous. To themselves, they appear just fine, but before God, their their righteousness is, is like filthy rags. So do you agree with the pastor here that they've just forgotten to remember? No, uh, no, they've they, probably they haven't heard any good law gospel sermons for a long time. You mean kind of like this guy? Right. I just want, Father, you to know that I'm all in. My whole life is in you, Father. It's like we ought to have a, a little personal revival at communion time. I mean, we ought to be like where we're like, man, I'm all in, Jesus. I, I'll give you everything. And, and he begins to just fill us fresh and new. And, and it's like we come to the table there and just, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to follow you and obey you, Lord. I'm making a commitment to seek you first above all else. It's a moment to, to dive in deep. It's, it's a moment to completely trust God. Some of you are in positions where you're trying to decide, God, can I trust you if I, if I go this decision, if I make the decision, if I, if I, if I tithe this month, well, can I trust you? And I want to say to you, it's time for us to renew our commitment and trust God for everything. And when you come to that table, say, God, I trust you. It's, it's a moment to determine to live by faith regardless of anything else. It's a decision to become dangerous in the kingdom of God against the enemy. It's a decision to say, God, I'm all in. Count me in, Lord. My whole life is yours. Change me, use me. Do whatever you want. Man, he is throwing everything against the wall here. All the cliches, all the evangelical sayings from I Surrender All, which was a hymn that we sung when I was a kid, to diving in and pressing in and making you number one and all of this. The irony is that the true gift in the sacrament is the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And he has turned the true gift in the sacrament, you, to God. And you've pointed this out time and time again, that the directionality is all goofed up. What about the guy who really feels like, I am committed. I've given above and beyond my tithe. I've, I get up, I read my Bible every day. I mean, now he's going to come to the table with a sense of pride. Right. Yeah. Because I'm doing it. Pride, yeah. Looking yeah. around going, what's wrong with you clowns? That preacher just 
you know, preach that message. That that message was all about what I'm doing. Yeah. Again, Christ did, did is left. Yeah, yeah, did you hear it? <laughs> yeah, he's over there elbowing his wife, you know, <laughs> saying, why don't you get on board here, you know, or his son or what have you. We're talking about this whole business of the gift nature getting turned around. And there's a wonderful hymn verse. Uh, this is... Uh, Lutheran service book, hymn 636, Soul, Adorn Yourself with Gladness. Verse 3, He who craves a precious treasure, neither cost nor pain will measure, but the priceless gifts of heaven God to us has freely given, though the wealth of earth were proffered, none could buy the gifts here offered, Christ's true body for you riven, and his blood for you once given. That's the focus of the sacrament, right? This is, uh, and, and he has inverted this entirely, sadly inverted it. It's like this, that Jesus, he was all in at the cross. He's inviting us to be all in with him. That is it. He's complete. He's, he's closed the circle. We were suspicious at the start that he was going to, that he was going to use it as a lever, and here he has crassly used it as a lever. Scary. And this was never the spirit of evangelical preaching. The reformers roundly rejected this kind of, even, even Calvin rejected this kind of, of, of abuse of the gospel to leverage out of people this sort of obedience. So Jesus carries his own cross, up to a hill where he's crucified. And so the question then becomes, what are you now going to do? Mm-hmm. Jesus has done this for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are you now going to do for him? Gospel turned to law. And so today when you come to that cross, that juice, that bread, just renew that commitment. So God, I'm all in with you. So three things today. Reflect on his sacrifice, recall the benefits, and renew your commitment. Communion is a, is a deep and, and serious moment, but it's also a celebration of what Christ has done. And so at our church, the way we do communion is typically at the end of worship, we'll have our prayer ministry time, and we've got tables there in the four corners of our auditorium. I feel like when I do that, I'm a, a flight attendant, you know, four corners. But but there there is communion at these four tables and and so what we do every Sunday is we invite you to go get communion so I'm going to do that in just a minute until you go get communion and it's always a little chaotic because we don't form lines and somehow you all figure that out um, I kind of like the chaos because it forces you to kind of bump into people and it's kind of like it creates a family meal I know when we have a family meal there's a lot of talking going on and so as you're standing in line, feel free to turn around and introduce yourself to someone and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Whip, I'm Susan, I'm, I'm whoever, and, and talk. I'm, I'm Bill, and this is Holland. We just got married. It's really awesome. And, and just talk to people and, and, and let it be a family time. But when you get to that table today, I want you to pause and think about those three things, and I want you to just prepare yourself to encounter Jesus in a very deep way today. And... I think we ought to just press in. So would you do me a favor? Do you stand up and and let's just prepare ourselves and and begin to reflect on that sacrifice and and recall the benefits. And then let's renew our commitment. 
And so let me, let me pray first. Interestingly enough, no words of institution. So the, so the, so the, the actual text is not repeated, uh, so that, so that anyone knows what it is. Uh, we, we've entirely not addressed the, the, the institution, the sacrament recorded in the Gospels, where uh, this is for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and you mentioned before uh, in one of our prior episodes is that the pastor now is having to give instruction to the people, which means they do it so infrequently that every time it comes up, we have to do it like it's the very first time we've ever done it. Although he, he did say we do it every week. Did you catch that? I did not. Yeah, I think I think he did. So so probably the indicator here is that... No, he, no, 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 no. I think what he said was they do their prayer ministry every week. Okay. Not communion. Okay. But the point is that uh, whether whether they do it so infrequently or if they do it, you know, frequently, there are lots of visitors there who are, you know, receiving the sacrament without proper instruction. In fact, with totally improper instruction. Well, then, on top of that, if we follow the biblical procedure, so to speak, I mean, these people are doing it to their harm without knowing what it is, without any towards of faith in believing the promise of, of what Christ is giving us here. You've got non-believers. He didn't say anything about, hey, listen, if you're not a believer here with us, uh, this morning, this is kind of a, a family meal of for Christians. He didn't say anything like that. Uh, and we've talked about this before in in, um, in Exodus, right? Uh, who who may partake of the of Passover meal? It's only the circumcised, if you're a male, obviously. Minimal requirement: baptism. Uh, and there's uh, that hasn't been sounded here, and I'm sure that that's not even part of the procedure genetics of this thing. So what's your overall sense of, say, what this preacher has done when you talk about the 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where a pastor is to be a steward of the mysteries? How has he stewarded the mystery in this sermon? He has engaged in promiscuous administration of the sacrament, and uh, he's not a faithful steward of the mysteries. Every head bowed in the house. Before I step into this, if you're here today and, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the absolute best day to surrender your life to Jesus. And everybody's got their head bowed so they're not looking at you. And, but if you're here today and you want to say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ, would you lift your hand up real high to me so I can see you? I, I just want to know if there's anybody here that wants to say, today I want to give my life to Christ. Is there anyone here? I see there's one, there's two. Is there anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's all say this prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I surrender my life to Him today. Forgive me of my sin, and I turn to God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you with passion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's celebrate with those two people that prayed that today. Amen. I didn't get that. that. 
Want a whole lot of love? Yeah. I mean, that's how the hot song goes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a that's sexual. That's yeah. a. <laughs> I never. I never made that. You know how you couldn't watch movies growing up. Right. You know I couldn't listen to right. devil music. To get devil. I, I couldn't either. I I'd have to. You snuck. Away. You snuck away for that. Snuck away. Yeah. And that's why you listen to it now. Because I got in your car to come over here to pick up something. It's like, what is this man listening to on Sunday morning? <laughs> You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.